Chapter 5 of The Great Sinners of the Bible. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Robert Pecours. The Great Sinners of the Bible by Lewis Albert Banks. Chapter 5 Noah's Drunkenness The Peril of the Wine Glass. As Noah began to be a husbandman, and he planted a vineyard, and he drank of the wine and was drunken, and he was uncovered within his tent. Genesis chapter 9, verses 20 to 21. We hear a great deal about the temptations of youth and not much about the temptations that beset middle-aged people and those who are still farther along in the way of their life history. Yet every little while we hear of some man who has lived through youth and early manhood uprightly, with good habits, or winning respect and honor on all sides, but who, as he has grown older, seems to have lost the pressure of restraint which once held him in check from evil ways and shocks and astonishes the community by falling into outbreaking and disgraceful sin. It is not unfrequently the case that such disaster is connected with the sin of drunkenness. I have myself known more than one man who has reached the age of fifty years, a total abstainer, and then presuming on the power of will to resist undue seduction from strong drink, and persuaded perhaps in his own mind to believe that some stimulant would be valuable for his health, has been led to begin a course of moderate drinking which has ended in a few years of drunkenness and debauch. Noah seemed to have been a case of that sort. All his early life was pure and strong. He was a man of upright conversation and of wholesomeness and noble conduct. He pleased God and was a preacher of righteousness for a hundred and twenty years. And yet, after God's signal interposition in his behalf in the preparation of the ark for his salvation— when once again the world is before him, with the rainbow of mercy and promise spanning the heavens above him, he falls under the temptation of the wine cup and is seen in a drunken debauch which shames his family and ends in the most serious consequences to some that are dear to him. The truth is that the only safe course for young or old is total abstinence from strong drink. The glass of water may not bring so suddenly the sparkle to the eye and the color of the cheek as does the glass of wine, but on the other hand it never brings down a man's gray hairs in disgrace to a dishonored grave. Ella Wheeler Wilcox sings a tale of debate between these two glasses. There sat two glasses filled to the brim, on a rich man's table, rim to rim, one was ruddy as red as blood, and one was clear as the crystal flood. Said the glass of wine to his paler brother, Let us tell tales of the past to each other, and I can tell of banquet and revel and mirth, where I was king, for I ruled in might, and the proudest and grandest souls on earth fell under my touch, as though struck with blight. From the heads of kings I have torn the crown, 
From the height of fame I have torn men down. I have blighted many an honored name. I have taken virtue and given shame. I have tempted youth with a sip, a taste, which has made his future a barren waste. Oh, far greater than any king am I, or than any army beneath the sky. I have made the arm of the driver fail and sent the train from the iron rail. I have made good ships go down at sea, and the shrieks of the lost were sweet to me, for they said, Behold how great they'll be! Fame, strength, wealth, and genius before you fall, and your might and power are over all. Ho, ho, pale brother, laughed the wine. Can you boast of deeds as great as mine? Said the water-glass, I cannot boast of a king dethroned or a murdered host, but I can tell of hearts that were sad by my crystal drops made light and glad, of thirst that I have quenched and brows I have laved, of hands I have cooled and souls I have saved. I have leaped through the valley, dashed through the mountain, slept in the sunshine and dripped from the fountain. I have burst my cloud fetters and dropped from the sky, and everywhere gladdened the landscape and I, I have eased the hot forehead of fever and pain. I have made the parched meadows grow fertile with grain. I can tell of the powerful wheel of the mill that ground out the flour and turned at my will. I can tell of manhood, debased by you, that I have uplifted and crowned anew. I cheer and I help, I strengthen and aid, I gladden the heart of man and maid, I set the chain wine captain free, and all are the better for knowing me. And these are the tales they told each other, the glass of wine and its paler brother, as they sat together filled to the brim, on a rich man's table, rim to rim. If I speak to any man or woman who is without settled principles of total abstinence from strong drink, I would like to appeal to you, as Joshua did at Shechem, choose you this day whom you will serve. Now, the war between the United States and Spain has given us many striking illustrations of the peril of strong drink. The American Navy, which in the course of a few months has put itself in the leading place among the navies of the world for gunnery and skill and endurance and courage, superiority of every sort is the one branch of the United States public service where intoxicating liquors are rigidly prohibited. The fact is that we had been getting ready to do miracles with our Navy by over a half a century of growing sobriety. In 1831, Congress took an advance step by providing that all in the Navy who voluntarily relinquished their regular ration of liquor should be paid six cents a day extra. In 1842, the ration was cut down to one gill, but the alternative of half a pint of wine was added, and if a sailor did not use it, he was allowed three cents a day. In the first year of the Civil War, brought a greatly increased naval force and increased trouble from a strong drink. Moral sentiment had progressed, too. In July 1862, Congress revolutionized the American Navy 
by passing the historic law providing that from and after the first day of September, 1862, the spirit ration in the Navy of the United States shall forever cease, and thereafter no distilled spirituous liquors shall be admitted on board the vessels of war, except as medical stores, and upon the order and under the control of medical officers of such vessels, and to be used only for medical purposes. From and after the first day of September next, there shall be allowed and paid to each person in the Navy, now entitled to the spirit ration, five cents per day in commutation, and lieu thereof, which shall be in addition to the present pay. And since that day there has been no grog in the United States Navy, and this was the origin of the little couplet. They've raised his pay five cents a day and stopped his grog forever. It was these sober men, fed on honest food and drink, that gave them solid muscles and steady nerves and clear heads, whom Severa undertook to fight with a mob of Spanish drunkards. There was never a better illustration of the result of water pitted against wine, sobriety pitted against drunkenness in the history of the race. The Spanish officers sought to stimulate the sailors on their splendid modern cruisers by firing them with strong drink. They chose for their first attempt at escape the hour on Sunday morning when they knew that the crews of the American ships would be at religious services. And with the command to advance came the order, Open the stores of wine and brandy. Officers and men drank freely therefrom. The Spanish officers drew their pistols and threatened instant death to the first man who flinched or hesitated in his work. In the stoke hole, with the mercury at 120 degrees, half-drunken officers stood near half-drunken stokers, and the first man who gave way to fatigue and heat with the effect of the liquor was shot in his tracks. On the gun decks the sun beamed down on men whose stomachs were filled with the fiery liquid and made them half mad. They tore their clothing from their backs, cursing and shrieking because of the strain and liquor. Thus nerved with liquor the Spaniards prepared for their desperate struggle. The Americans went from their wholesome breakfast, with no stimulant stronger than water or coffee, followed by their Sunday prayers, and history will ever hold in wonder the result of that great naval duel between sober men and drunkards. It is greatly to be regretted, and greatly to our discredit as a nation, that the government of the United States has not laid as much wisdom in dealing with its soldiers as with its sailors. The establishment of army canteens by the government itself, and the taking of volunteers, who enlisted out of heroic spirit to fight for their country and to uphold the star-spangled banner, and degraded them to be bartenders, is a disgrace to the nation. There can be no doubt that the army canteens have, during the Spanish War, caused more disease and death than the wounds of the enemy. There is abundant testimony that the large death roll in our army camps, where the soldiers have not been in the face of the enemy at all, has been caused in a great degree by strong drink. As an indignant editor has recently said, the army canteen is more dangerous than the battlefield. Scars upon the soldier's body are honorable. But the rotting drunkard, manufactured by consent of the government, 
if not by its active efforts, is a curse that disgraces both the soldier and the government long after the war has ceased. It is a dishonor that the United States should betray a mother's, a wife's, or a sister's confidence by upholding a nuisance and peril, which the best citizens are fighting at home with all their strengths. It is a shameful thing that the government should consent to protect and forward the canteen and thus bring temptation and possible ruin to a young man who scorn to patronize the saloon at home. Because of these army canteens, many soldiers who escape death in the fever hospital will come back as sots. And one does not have to go far for illustrations or warning of the peril which comes from the drink. It spares neither childhood nor old age. One day, within a week, in New York City, a gray-haired man, 67 years old, a respectable man and fairly well-to-do, stabbed his son, 26 years old, to death in the presence of his horror-stricken family simply because, while under the maddening influence of strong drink, he came home and found his son lying on the father's bed taking a nap. Well, had he been sober... Nothing could have tempted him to do such a deed, but the drink in him made him a murderer. On the same day, in the same city and the same ward, there was found lying in the gutter, reeking with the fumes of liquor, a well-dressed little boy of seven years. He belonged to a good family. He was taken to a hospital, and when the doctors had brought him to so that he could talk, the little boy was scarcely more than a baby who had never tasted liquor in his life until that day, said that a saloon-keeper had first given him a big drink of beer and had then given him a glass of something cold that burned his throat, which those about his cot in the hospital had no difficulty in recognizing as whiskey. The reporter nonchalantly closed his report of the occurrence by saying that no attempt was made to arrest the saloon-keeper. The traffic in strong drink is the horrid blight of our time. John Ruskin says, Drunkenness is not only the cause of crime, it is the crime. And the encouragement of drunkenness for the sake of profit on the sale of drink is certainly one of the most criminal methods of assassination for money ever adopted by the people of any age or any country. A physician relates that he was standing with a friend in front of a saloon in a neighboring city when a builder of his acquaintance, a man of amiable and excellent character, a first-class workman, full of business, with an interesting family, respected by everybody, and bidding fair to be one of the leading men of the city, came up to them and laughingly said, Well, I have just done what I've never done before in my life. And what was that? Why, a man has owed me a bill for work for a long time, and I'd done him for the money till I was tired, but a minute ago I caught him out here and asked him for the money. Well, he said, I'll pay it to you if you'll step in here and get a drink with me. No, I said, I'd never drink, never drank in my life. Well, he replied, do as you please. If you won't drink with me, I won't pay your bill. That's all. But I told him I could not do that. 
However, finding he would not pay the bill, rather than lose the money, I, I went in and got the drink. And he laughed at the strange occurrence as he concluded. As soon as he had finished the story, the doctor's companion, an old, discreet, shrewd man, turned to him and in a most impressive tone said, Sir, that was the dearest drink that ever crossed your lips and the worst bill you ever collected. Happy would it have been for that man had he taken that word of reproof, for the physician testifies that in less than twelve months that builder had become a confirmed drinker, and in three years died the death of the drunken vagabond. Now I wish with all the earnestness of my soul to impress upon both men and women, for one of the saddest features of recent modern life is the increase of drunkenness among society women, that you cannot afford to depend on stimulants to build up temporarily your strength or the sparkle of your conversation. Every bit of added strength or intellectual brilliancy furnished by strong drink is fictitious and curses in the end. My good friend, Dr. Amos R. Wells, says that he once went to see an exhibition of Gustave Doré's pictures. As a boy, he had been fascinated with the spirited work of this artist, and as he saw it, represented it engravings, and he anticipated a rich treat in seeing the glorious originals. But alas, though a few of them met his anticipations and were brilliant indeed, most of them were only immense sheets of dull colors, some of them were ghosts of pictures peering out of a world of black. Doré did not use properly made colors, and so his painting scarcely outlasted the life of the artist himself. It is said that the same is true of the widely admired work of the great Hungarian painter Munkacsi, who painted Christ before Pilate and Christ on Calvary. He is very fond of the use of bitumen, which imparts exceeding richness to pictures, but must be used with great caution, or it will turn the painting black. Munkachi, however, uses it lavishly, and most of his most valued works are almost indistinguishable. In working on the greater canvas of human life, what multitudes are tempted to drown care and make life sparkle and seem brighter for an hour at the risk of ruining the whole beautiful picture? How many there are tonight in prisons and penitentiaries? in insane asylums and hospitals, in cellars and attics, while others are only human drift logs floating on the current as drunken tramps, who began the painting of a life and character with as fair and sweet a promise as is held by any one of us here. But the strong drink, mixed with the colors, has changed the canvas that would have been a thing of beauty into a loathsome daub that is fit only for the waste heap. I do not dare to close without a word of hope and invitation to anyone here who was already under the grip of this evil habit, and who finds that its power has steadily grown upon him until his resolutions to keep away from the drink are broken again and again. I want to say to any such that, for the sting of the adder, the bite of the serpent that is in the wine cup, there is only one certain cure, and that is in the Christ. Dr. Langman read a paper not long since, before the New York Academy of Medicine, which has aroused widespread interest. 
It described the experiments which he has been making with snake poisons, through which he has produced an antidote which, when he has fully developed it, he believes will prove infallible. If his confidence is justified, it will be a great blessing to the world, and his name will go down in history as one of the greatest benefactors of mankind. Multitudes in our own country, and far greater multitudes in India and other lands, would be saved from death every year through such a cure. Everyone who has the misfortune to be bitten by a poisonous snake will resort to it. How much happier the world would become if men everywhere were as wise in seeking a cure from the deadly venom of sin. But thank God there is a cure which is infallible. No matter how terrible the havoc which sin has wrought in the system, God has provided a remedy which is able to bring health and peace. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. End of chapter 5